Father, as we come to your word today, we acknowledge that we are unworthy to even come into your presence. And that it's only by grace, by grace alone, that we can do so. And so we come into your presence by your grace and ask this morning that you would instruct us, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us for the journey, for our edification, for our sanctification, that Christ would be exalted not only during this time, but throughout our lives. And so we do this, we set aside this time for the glory of Christ and for the strengthening of our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 32 today. We're in a section of Genesis right now in which we see Jacob being confronted uh, by all of his fears, by all these fears that he's had from the time that we were really introduced to him. And you know, when I think about the things that I fear, there is one thing in particular that I think uh, probably tops the list, probably tops all my other fears. I, I don't necessarily fear death for myself, although I think I'm probably like everybody else. I, I fear the process of getting there. Uh, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I, I don't look forward to the suffering that I might have to endure as I come closer and closer to death's door. Uh, so I'd probably prefer for it to be quick, uh, as probably everybody else does. So I don't fear death itself for myself, but I do fear the death of a loved one. And many of you know what Christina and I went through earlier this year with Christina's health. Uh, and as, as time has passed and as we've gotten just further away from that season, I've come to realize and, and, and see more clearly that she was probably much closer to death than I realized at the time, even though at the time I knew that she was inching, if not taking long strides, uh, closer to death's threshold than I was comfortable with. What I do know is that there are plenty of people out there who don't survive having pancreatitis and sepsis and pneumonia all at the same time. Now, I, I know, and I, and I knew at the time, that God is sovereign over all life and death. And I knew at the time, and I, I was even, uh, in a sense, very comforted by the fact, extremely comforted by the fact, that Christina was not going to die unless the Lord had ordained that it was her time. In that case, there would be nothing that I could do or nothing that a doctor could do if that was the time that the Lord had ordained for her to go home. But how would I live in the aftermath? How would I cope with the grief? How would I handle the loneliness? I mean, I know that if the Lord were to take her home, that, that He could heal me, that He could heal my heart, that He could heal my, my hurting. But would I just be left alone for the rest of my life? I mean, there, there were all these, these crazy, frightening questions that I had never been confronted with in my life that I was forced to acknowledge during those couple of months even if I only acknowledged them long enough to kind of put them on the proverbial back burner of my mind at the time. But during that time, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my faith. I learned a lot about my fears during that time. 
And there's nothing like the looming possibility of death, whether it's your own or the possibility of the death of a loved one, to make you consider these two things together, faith and fear. Now, we'll be looking today at a story that Moses' original audience, the Israelites who were wandering around in the wilderness, it's a story that they would have done well to remember as they wandered in the wilderness, uh, filled with the fear of these giants who were inhabiting the land of Canaan as they wandered throughout the wilderness. Our passage today is found in Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 21. And the point of this passage is that the key to finding peace or the key to finding tranquility in times of trepidation is to remember and to prayerfully trust in God's faithful provision. And as we begin this passage, we have to remember that Jacob was forced to confront the fears that he had had for many years about his father-in-law, Laban his uncle and father-in-law, who had been a cruel master, who had changed his wages ten times, who had completely cheated and swindled him time after time after time. And Jacob was just so afraid of, of, of Laban and what Laban might do that when he decided that it was time for him to, to, to get away from Laban, he had to sneak away. There were no farewells. There were no goodbyes. Nevertheless, Laban did catch up to him. But the night before he overtook Jacob's camp, God had specifically come to Laban in a dream and warned him about touching even a little bit, even in a nice way, Jacob, because he didn't want Laban to think that he could entice in any way, either being nice or being cruel, that he could entice Jacob to coming back. And Jacob was bold. He, he was bold with Laban. He was, he was maybe even audacious as he confronted Laban for, for cheating him and for swindling him over and over again for, for 20 years. But Jacob doesn't have that same kind of boldness for what lies ahead. Esau. Esau lies ahead. Now, 20 years prior to this, Jacob was forced to flee Canaan for his life after swindling Esau's birthright from him by deceiving his father Isaac and his mother Jacob's mother Rebekah had told him go go stay with with her brother uh, Jacob's uncle Laban and that she would send word for him once the coast was clear once Esau's temper cooled down a bit and that word never came it's 20 years later, and, and that word has, has never come. So what would you assume if you were Jacob? You'd assume that he still has murderous intentions. You'd assume that he still is enraged, that he still plans on murdering Jacob if he can get his hands on him. But Jacob also knows that God has specifically instructed him, has specifically instructed Jacob to return to Canaan. And Jacob knows that God has promised to bless him and to protect him. Nevertheless, as anyone who has faced the possibility of death knows, it's one thing to know intellectually that God is sovereign over life and death, but it's quite another to actually believe it and be comfortable with it and be at peace with it in our hearts. And so as we start this passage today, we see that Jacob is filled with fear. He's filled with fear about what's going to lie ahead. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, 
from his confrontation with Laban. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So this, this passage starts with Jacob encountering not only an angel, but angels. It's, it's plural. And this occurs between two events. It occurs after his confrontation with Laban and before his encounter with Esau. And people in our day and age have some radically, insanely unbiblical ideas when it comes to angels. Uh, some imagine that they are these little, cute, cuddly, celestial beings that look like little children. Uh, you might have seen that. Some imagine that uh, angels are, are, are dead people, that when their, their loved ones die, that they go to be an angel. Uh, and, and neither of these ideas is biblical in even the slightest degree. Angels are, are not these cute and cuddly little things that look like children. They are not uh, human beings that have passed on to the afterlife. No, when, when Scripture describes angels in in vivid detail they sound terrifying they sound like these warrior creatures that would instill fear and instill trepidation in the most courageous of men sometimes they appear to be indistinguishable from humans such as you know the angels when they came to rescue lot and his family from Sodom. Or we have to consider what, what Paul says about how some people, uh, when they're being hospitable, they, they host angels without even realizing it. But this seems to be only a temporary appearance because other times they almost sound like something that you can't really fully describe. Ezekiel describes them this way. He says, and, their, uh, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. I mean, if you've ever seen an artist's rendition of this, it's, it's clear that this is really difficult to describe. He, he's seeing something that he can't fully describe, and it just sounds bizarre. We have to remember that they are spirit beings. Angels are spirit beings. And as such, they don't have a physical appearance because they are not physical beings. They're spiritual. As one commentator uh, notes, he says, there is no description given in the Bible of what they look like in their true essence. Fair enough. And so with that said, I'm actually of the opinion that they look like whatever God wants them to look like to the person who sees them. But that's something else we need to know. It's extremely rare that somebody actually realizes that they are looking at an angel. Usually, they remain unseen or unrecognized. The only way that somebody sees one is if God wants them to be seen, though. The only way someone sees one is if God wants them to be seen. You'll remember the way that Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servants so that he could see that they were surrounded by a host of angelic armies. And so in this instance, God allows Jacob. He opens Jacob's eyes to see and to, 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 to grasp, to behold this army of angels around him. How many are there? Well, look at what Jacob says. He says, this is God's camp. 
That's what he says about this angel army he sees. This is God's camp. And the Hebrew word that gets translated as camp is the same word that is often used to refer to an army or an armed host. So the idea is that there is a multitude of angels right out there on his journey to Canaan. And so Jacob names the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. The idea behind that, the reason he calls it two camps, is because Jacob has his camp, right? And then they're being accompanied by the Lord's army of angels, thus making two camps. Now, imagine yourself for a moment in Jacob's position. Wouldn't you be wondering why God waited to bring his armies down from heaven to this point, at this point? Not before, not when he was confronting Laban. And I would actually argue that the reality is that they were there all along. It's only now that Jacob's being allowed to see, that his eyes are being opened to see that they're, that they're with him. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry notes, quote, they had invisibly attended him all along, but now they appeared to him because he had greater dangers before him than those hitherto encountered, end quote. So he sees there are countless angels, angel armies surrounding him. And here's the beautiful thing about this. I'm not even sure that at the time that Jacob realized that this was exactly what he needed for what was coming. And that's the way God works so often, isn't it? It's the way He works with us so often. We wish that God would would give us what we need, exactly what we need, way ahead of time, like like a a silver bullet that that we can just keep loaded in the chamber, just in case this incident or something ever happens, and you might need to use it someday, maybe months, maybe years, maybe never. But he often waits until the last moment to give us exactly what we need. He waits until two minutes to midnight to provide what we need for us. Why does he do that? The reason's pretty simple, I think. It's so that we come to the end of every other hope. So that we see that God is our only hope because the clock's ticking and we're out of time. And God shows up and gives us what we need. God is the one who ordains every trial. But He doesn't give us trials. He doesn't put us through the furnace of trials or through valleys in vain. They're not accidental. They're not without purpose. There is a reason for each and every single one of them. Even if it's beyond our ability to completely wrap our minds around, there is a reason for each of them. At the very least, trials show us the weaknesses of our own faith, and they also burn away the dross, the waste, the junk, the sin in our lives. But here we see that when God ordains great trials, and a great trial does await Jacob, He also provides great comforts and great assurances. If nothing else, you need to know that if you are in Christ, God has given you faith. A faith that will withstand trials. And one of the things that we've one of the themes that we've revisited over and over again in Genesis is that a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. And so our faith gets tested. And by that, 
our faith gets strengthened. God has given you faith if you are in Christ. And He continues to uphold and to preserve and to sustain your faith for the journey ahead for every trial that you will face. So if you are in Christ and if you are faced with a crisis that would cause you to reach the point of despair, the point of absolute hopelessness in in every solution, you don't face that crisis empty-handed. At the very least, you have your faith. You also have your Bible, which contains God's promises unto His own. And like Jacob, if you are in Christ, you need to know that you are an object of God's relentless, pursuing, and renewing grace. And the best place to experience the reality and the depths of God's sustaining grace unto you is in the depths of the darkest valleys. Nevertheless, nothing can force you to examine what degree of faith you have or what degree of faith you might be lacking. Like a fear-instilling crisis where you feel like you might die. And that's what lies ahead for Jacob. Let's continue with verses 3-8. to And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So we see here that Jacob actually knows that he actually has a clear path to Canaan. There is nothing that stands in the way between him and Canaan. And it's easy for us to miss that, but Moses specifically tells us that Jacob sent his messengers to Seir with a message for Esau. Seir, we're told, is in Edom, which is actually south of Canaan. So what is it that causes or or invokes Jacob to send this message to Esau if he knows that he's got a clear path to Canaan? My guess is that it's his conscience. It's his conscience. You know, we live with this myth, and I think people probably always have, but we live with this myth, and it's entirely false, that if we just leave things alone, if we sin and we just forget about it, like it never happened, sin against somebody, and then we'll just let that go, and we'll just coast through life for a while, and eventually they'll just forget about it, and I'll forget about it, That is not the way that it works. Our consciences do not go silent after many years. And it's a a very dangerous thing for our consciences to go silent. The truth is, we tend to take reconciliation far, far too lightly. God's Word is clear that if you have wronged someone, you have the obligation to go to them humbly 
and to make things right, to, to restore the fellowship, to restore peace. And you can't enjoy the peace, you can't enjoy the promises of God until you've done that. Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And we're actually going to see Jacob illustrate or, or kind of exemplify these principles of reconciliation over the course of the next couple chapters. But 20 years after sinning greatly against his brother, Jacob's conscience just isn't allowing him to have peace about returning home. Even though Esau has relocated and he knows that, that Esau has relocated. 20 years after sinning against Esau, Jacob is painfully aware of his sin. He's painfully aware of his inadequacy. He's painfully aware that he didn't trust God. He's painfully aware of the fact that he took matters into his own hands instead. Another theme that we've seen over and over and over again through the book of Genesis. And notice, by the way, notice that Esau is not living in the promised land of Canaan. He's left it. And that's a, that's a very, very significant detail because Canaan is it's a typology. It, 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 it's a picture. It's an illustration of something. It represents the fullness of God's promises fulfilled. So Esau's absence from Canaan is a picture of him rejecting God's promises and saying that he's not interested in going to live somewhere else. So Jacob sends his messengers to deliver a message to Esau. And I want you to notice Jacob's language in reference to Esau. He calls Esau Lord. Lord Esau. And he refers to himself as your servant. As Esau's servant. And that might seem really odd because back in chapter 25, Rebekah was told by God specifically, the older shall serve the younger. Who's the older? Esau. Esau's the older. Jacob's the younger. Esau's supposed to be the one referring to Jacob this way. And when, when Isaac accidentally gave the blessing to Jacob, when he meant to bless Esau, Isaac had said, Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. But that's not what's happening here at all. As Jacob is humbly referring to Esau as Lord Esau and himself as servant. He wants Esau to know that he's not there. He's not coming back to insist upon or to, to enforce the conditions of the blessing and the birthright. His message boils down to, I'm sorry and I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to make things right with you. And so he sends these messengers out and they come back with a message for him. They come back with a report that Esau is coming with an army of 400 men. Apparently word had already gotten to Esau that Jacob was there. And so he had already put an army together. He was already on his way. Now remember, it's been 20 years since he had seen or, or spoken to Jacob. And so it seems that the most reasonable explanation for the presence of the army is to make sure that Jacob isn't planning anything that might threaten Esau's well-being or Esau's livelihood. 
As far as Esau knew, Jacob was still the same old Jacob. As far as he knew, Jacob was coming to possess the promised boundaries of the land. But we need to know, a little bit of a spoiler here that we'll see in, in the coming uh, weeks, Esau's not angry anymore. He, he doesn't have murderous intentions anymore. But he has the army with him as a precaution. And this tells us that Esau, during these 20 years, Esau has become an incredibly rich, influential, powerful man in his land. And the news that Esau is coming with an army of 400 men shakes Jacob to the core of his being. He's absolutely terrified. He's he's deeply fearful. He's extremely distressed. And so he falls back on an old habit. Working things out according to his own understanding to protect himself. Taking matters into his own hands rather than seeking help or guidance or protection from the Lord. And so what follows is a prayer. We will see him, him pray, but that wasn't his first thought. Going to the Lord in prayer wasn't his first plan of attack or, or, or defense. It wasn't his first thought. It wasn't his second thought. It might not have even been his third thought. He's not even thinking about God's promise to protect him. He's not even thinking about the fact that they are surrounded by a multitude of angelic armies. He's thinking, oh, Esau's a really skilled hunter. And he wants to kill me. And so Jacob devises this, this strategy that's really kind of ironic. Remember how he had named that place Mahanaim? Two, two camps? Well, now he, he literally divides his own camp into two camps. I mean, just a few verses back, he knew that the Lord was with him. He knew that the Lord's camp or the Lord's angelic army was, was with him. He knew that the Lord was protecting him. But in this moment of panic, it's the furthest thing from his mind. He's completely forgotten. And and isn't that how it so often works with us as well? You know, it's easier to conjure up our own weak and, and, and futile and pathetic plans and schemes in the heat of a moment of panic, isn't it? But by doing this, by, by, by separating his camp into two, Jacob has not strengthened his forces. He's actually weakened them. He's, divide, he's devised uh, this strategy whereby maybe, if they're lucky, or if they're blessed enough, half will survive, or maybe not. But they'll only have half as many people to fight. So what was Jacob supposed to do? I mean, there's one sense in which we know that God is sovereign over life and death, but in another sense, that doesn't nullify our responsibility, your responsibility to act. Listen, there's nothing wrong with using your head, with with using a, a little bit of wisdom in situations that are frightening or maybe even dangerous. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can you can trust the Lord, but you still lock your door at night, right? It doesn't mean that you don't trust the Lord. It just means that you're being wise. But the text here makes it clear 
for us that it didn't matter what Jacob did according to his own wisdom or according to his own strength. It would have done him absolutely no good without the Lord intervening and protecting him. So what should he have done? Well, his, his first response should have been to go to the Lord. His first response should have been to pray. That would have been the wisest thing that he could have done if that had been his first and immediate response. If nothing else, it would have saved him from a lot of pointless exasperation. It would have, saved him from, it would have prevented him from weakening his forces by dividing them. But his exasperation brings him to the end of his resources, to the end of his wisdom, to the end of his strength, to the end of his riches. He realizes that none of these things are going to save him. His fearful exasperation ultimately drives him to the very best place that he can be, and that is on his knees before the Lord, praying. So let's look at his prayer, verses 9 to 12. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's quite a prayer. Blessed is the man who calls upon the name of the Lord in the hour of trouble, right? And that's exactly what Jacob does. It's the point that he's brought to, where he realizes he's weakened his forces. He realizes he's not going to make it if God doesn't intervene. His initial inclination was to put his confidence in all of the wrong things. In his wisdom, in his scheming and plotting, in his strength. The things, these are all things that the flesh might boast in. The Lord says in Jeremiah 9.23, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Why not? Because those are all the wrong things to trust in. And then again, in Jeremiah 17.5, the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And there's nothing like the fear of impending death and the feeling of sheer hopelessness to turn our hearts to the Lord. The application here is pretty simple and straightforward. Prayer should never be a last resort. It should never be a last resort. It often is, but it shouldn't be. And what will it take for us to learn? Trials. Trials. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, God may have to do with us what he so clearly did with Jacob, 
Perhaps he'll have to put us between a rock and a hard place and reduce us to sheer desperation before we seek his face and call upon him. End quote. And so I urge you to never, ever let it come to this. Never let it come to the point where God's got to put you in a difficult place where surrender is, is, is a struggle. But if it must, I, I suppose that's it's between you and the Lord. Now this is the first time that we've, we've seen Jacob pray. It's probably not the first time he's actually prayed. I, I find that pretty unlikely. But it's the first time that we're told about him praying. And part of the reason that I would say that it's, it, it, it can't be, I'm, it's possible that it is, but it, it's very unlikely to be his first time praying, is because he prays so well. He prays so well. In fact, if, if we examine his prayer, even briefly, we see that there are no less than five very important elements of prayer that we find that he uses in his prayer. And so the first thing that he does is he addresses God as God. He addresses God as God. It's a very reverent prayer from the very start. He recalls that God is the God of his grandfather Abraham and that God is the God of his father Isaac. There's a little bit of a glaring absence here. He doesn't say, my God. But he addresses God reverently. And he addresses God not only by his general name, Elohim, but also by his covenant name, Jehovah. And in addressing God, he recalls the specific command that God had given him to return to Canaan. So the first element of his prayer that is exemplary is that it's very reverent. He calls upon God as who God is. Secondly, he acknowledges, and this is a big one, he acknowledges his own utter unworthiness. Not that he used to be unworthy, not that once upon a time he, he was so unworthy, but that he still is. He's still so unworthy to be a recipient of God's grace. And this is something, I, I understand, this is something that feels like such a tough pill, such a giant pill for everybody in our culture to swallow because we're a culture that has idolized self-esteem. And to say that you're unworthy, whoa, that, that's, that's a problem. No, that is a blessed thing to do. It's a blessed thing to do. Think of the, the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee goes to the temple. And he, he goes up to the temple and he thanks God that he, that, that the Pharisee, is really such a, such a great person, such an upright person, such a very moral person, so much better than tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus tells this parable. Part of the reason he tells this parable is because he wants to make sure that we understand that God will not accept that type of prayer. He will not accept that type of attitude. And that prayer is contrasted by the prayer of the tax collector who's too ashamed to draw near to the temple. He stands in the distance beating his chest, begging God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus wants us to understand that that is the type of prayer that pleases God, that warms God's heart. It's humble. It's humble. And we can't come to God any other way. 
That kind of humility is clearly and explicitly seen in Jacob's prayer. Third, he acknowledges that despite his own unworthiness, God has been so, so faithful unto him. Everything that God has promised, he's been faithful to, despite Jacob's unworthiness. When God first spoke to Jacob and made these unconditional promises to Jacob, Jacob had nothing but a staff in his hand and and, and a rock to lay his head on. Now he's prospered so abundantly, not only does he have all this livestock, but he's got two camps. And he acknowledges that everything that he has is God's grace. It's God's grace. Fourth, he presents his petition. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob knows that what he needs the most at this moment is beyond the scope of his ability. It's beyond the spectrum of his ability. It's something that he cannot do on his own. He knows that God is his only hope. And when you know that God is your only hope, when you, when you really truly acknowledge that God is your only hope, that's a good place to be. Fifth, and finally, he recalls the basis for his petition. Look at verse 12. He says, But you said, God, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. That is the basis for his request. That's the basis for his petition. Jacob knew that if God was going to do what God had said he was going to do, God was going to have to deliver him from danger here. It's kind of amazing, kind of impressive maybe, that Jacob actually remembers God's promises verbatim, word for word. And I encourage you to do the same. I encourage you to memorize as many of God's promises as you can from Scripture so that you can recall them as the basis for your petitions in your own personal prayer life. But as good as this prayer is, that there are a couple weaknesses. One of them is he doesn't refer to God as his God. But there's, there's one other glaring weakness. And that is that Jacob trusted God mostly intellectually. Mostly intellectually, if he had really believed that God was going to do what God had promised him, that God was going to protect him, if he had really believed that, he would have just gotten up from his knees right then and there and he would have gone to meet Esau face to face. But that's not what he's going to do. And further, even after this prayer, he continues taking matters into his own hands. He continues leaning on his own understanding, devising a strategy for meeting Esau from his own wisdom. And what he doesn't know is that God's already provided for him. God has already fought the battle for him. Esau isn't angry anymore, but Jacob doesn't know that. So, He continues to strategize from the flesh. And isn't that just like us? We don't make prayer a priority so often. And even after we do pray, it's still so much easier to just 
lean on our own understanding and take things into our own hands and do things in a way that seems wise to us. And were it not for God's unfailing grace unto His own, surely every single one of us would perish in the futility of our own efforts. Let's continue. Verses 13 to 21. So he, Jacob, so he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. So Jacob's got this plan. Not only has he divided his armies, but he's got this plan where there will be a convoy, an entire caravan of gifts lined up for Esau. And he thinks that some 550 plus livestock should do the trick of softening up Esau's heart because he struggles to believe that God will have done that for him already. And so at the, at the front of this, this convoy, that if you think about it, it must have been just miles and miles in length. And at the front, Jacob has this gift of 200 female goats. And the servant who is to present the goats to Esau is instructed by Jacob, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. But what if that's not enough? What if 200 goats doesn't do the trick. What if it doesn't soften Esau's heart? Well, right behind that, Jacob positions a servant with 20 male goats who has the exact same message. And what if that's not enough? Maybe 200 ewes will do the trick. Maybe 200 ewes will soften his heart. But what if it doesn't? Maybe 20 rams will. But what if it doesn't? Maybe 30 camels with their young will. But what if it doesn't? Maybe 40 cows will. Maybe 10 bulls will. Maybe 20 female donkeys will. Maybe 10 male donkeys will. I mean, at what point is this just overkill? At what point is it, is it just too much? Why does he go to such lengths? Look at verse 20. Because Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. 
and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the plan was to have this whole caravan, this convoy of gifts, a whole procession that will demonstrate to Esau that Jacob is a really nice guy and he's willing to surrender everything that he owns for the sake of reconciliation. But at the end of this procession is Jacob standing alone and terrified. He's he's alone and he's terrified of what will happen when he comes face to face with Esau. He will give up all of his possessions if he has to. He will have even given up his family if he has to. But he had not given himself up. He's still trusting in himself. He's the same old Jacob. Trusting in himself. Scheming. Trusting in the flesh. Oh, how difficult it is to give up all trust in the flesh. But for the first time in his life, Jacob is willing to be last. And don't we do the same thing? I mean, we, we, have, we have such a difficult time fully surrendering ourselves to God. It's so much easier to just check boxes off of a checklist than to completely surrender ourselves to God, isn't it? Went to church this week. Check. Made sure everybody saw that I put a, a check in the offering. Check. Prayed before every meal this week. Check. Spent three minutes reading this super cheesy devotional Monday through Friday. Check. Check, 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 check. Isn't that easy? It's, it's so easy and so shallow and so superficial. That is not what God asks for. That is not what pleases God. He does not want you to live by a checklist. He wants you to walk with Him and to have fellowship with Him. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your mind. He wants your strength. All of it. He wants your obedience. But it's easier, it's so much easier just to give Him our goats and a few camels. And that's exactly what we would do until the time comes when God Himself finally comes and wrestles us into a deeper, more personal submission unto Him. The point of all of this is that we find peace in the storm. We find tranquility in times of trepidation by prayerfully trusting in what God provides. Trusting in God's faithful provision. There are no obstacles on the road to Canaan that God in His sovereign and merciful provision has not already dealt with. God had already softened Esau's heart toward Jacob. And so really, all the fear, all the exasperation, all the trepidation that Jacob was feeling, it was all for nothing. It was all in vain. And if Jacob's plan that he conceived of in his flesh, if it had worked, and Esau had had come angry and settled down by the time he got to Jacob, who would get the glory? Jacob would. But God gets the glory. Because God had already dealt with the situation. 
God had already provided for Jacob's greatest need in that moment. Even our best plans, executed to perfection, fall short of what God can do. Jacob wasn't wrong for planning. I mean, the book of Proverbs tells us over and over again how important it is to have and to exercise wisdom. So Jacob wasn't wrong for using some wisdom and for for planning. He was wrong for trusting in himself more than he trusted in God. Jacob's problem is often what our problem is when we fail to understand that the underlying issues are really spiritual, not physical. They're primarily spiritual, not physical. Because God has always met the needs of his people especially when it comes to his calling them to Canaan. You see, Canaan is, is a picture. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. It's a typology of heaven. And thus, of course, the greatest provision is seen in the fact that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to meet our greatest need, which is to be reconciled unto God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the cleansing and the forgiveness of sins. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that there won't be trials. It doesn't mean there won't be valleys. It doesn't mean there won't be hardships. But if you suffer in your hardships, in your trials, in your journey, remember that nobody ever suffered as severely or as willingly as Christ Jesus, who submitted His will to the Father taking the sins of His people upon Himself so that the Father could pour out His wrath on Him instead of those who would repent and trust in Christ for salvation. If you have not repented and believed in Christ, this is your greatest need. You aren't even on the road to Canaan. How are you going to get to Canaan apart from trusting in God's provision? You won't. You can't. It's your greatest need to trust in Christ as your provision if you are not already in Christ. That would be your greatest need. Nothing else matters in comparison. Nothing. But if you are in Christ, know this. You have no obstacles between here and Canaan that God has not already overcome in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when the journey from Egypt, which is a typology of the world, when the journey from Egypt to Canaan feels impossible or feels frightening, look to Christ first. Prayerfully repenting of any self-reliance and remembering and believing that He is the fullness of God's provision unto you. If you are in Christ, the Lord invites you to bring your petitions to Him in prayer and to then rest in the fact that you're not in control of the situation, but that's okay, because He is. As Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 4, verses 5-7, to and I'll close with this. And remember that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned and chained to a Roman guard, which is a situation that might, think, might make you think that death is looming. It might cause you some fear. It might cause you some distress. This is what Paul says to them. 
He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Know that God is sovereign. And so when you bring your prayers and petitions to him, he hears you. He hears you. And he's your greatest hope. He's your only hope. And so trust that he is for you. Trust that he is with you. And have peace with whatever may come. There are no hurdles, no obstacles, no trials, no valleys, no hardships on your journey to Canaan that God cannot overcome or hasn't already dealt with. Our arrival there is not yet. The journey is frightening, but it's nevertheless certain that we will arrive there by His grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the the depths and the heights of Your mercy. Thank You, God, that despite the futility of our efforts, You lavish Your grace on us. Not because we deserve it, Not because apart from your grace we would even want it, but because you love us. And so we thank you, Lord, for meeting our greatest needs, sending Christ, your own Son, to be born in a manger, to live a perfect life, and to die the only unjust death ever, taking our sins upon himself and giving us His own righteousness instead. Thank You for the robes of righteousness that we have in Christ. Thank You for providing for our greatest need to be reconciled unto You. Teach us, Lord, to walk in light of that truth, to live our lives in light of that truth, and to surrender ourselves more fully to your will that we may have the peace that passes all understanding in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths 
in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.